It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hour number two starts now, seven minutes after seven o'clock. Glad you are checking in on a Saturday morning, and I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you stopping by because I know everyone is just going all over the place with some busy holiday plans. Happy Independence Day. I don't know how old America is right now, but 200-something years old, so happy birthday. It's going to be a great weekend. Please be safe. Whether you're driving on the roads, there was a lot of really serious accidents yesterday um, on the road. I saw two myself just in my short distance from Fulton to Cherokee County. But give yourself a lot of time. Please be very careful. Do not drink and drive. Um, and be careful with the fireworks, too. Nobody wants to lose any uh, digits or hands or feet or arms or anything like that. You kind of have to know what you're doing. Alcohol and fireworks usually don't go together. So pick one or the other. 404-872-0750 is the number to get on to Green and Growing. And as I've talked about, uh, Trent Ellis from Armor Wildlife Management will be joining me in just a little bit. So get those questions in. It's not often that we can talk to a wildlife specialist who's going to be able to tell you how to repel deer, what what best practices are in your landscape for that. And also, if you're having issues with snakes and fawns, baby deer, are they damaging things? I don't know. You can call and talk to Trent about it. And we have Carl from Roswell. He called in and has a question about sweet potatoes. Hey, Carl, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ashley. How are you doing? Great. How about you this morning? Doing fantastic. I'm enjoying your show, and uh, I have uh, three, three vegetable questions. Uh, one's a true mystery. Uh, but I um, wanted to jump right into it. The sweet potatoes, they seem to be, other than the other vegetables that you've already talked about that are having problems, my tomatoes and others, um, the sweet potatoes seem to be thriving, but I have no idea. I've never planted them before. Um, when to pick them? Because you don't know what's below the surface until you start digging, right? Right, right. And no, you're absolutely right. They are a warm weather plant. They love the hot temperatures. And for anybody who wanted to be like Carl and say, well, wait, I wanted to plant sweet potatoes. Once uh, soil temperatures get above 70 degrees, then you can plant them in the garden from slips or from eyes from a potato. Um, But you can do that maybe, I don't know if I back time it a little bit, maybe three, four months ago. Uh, would be the ideal time to do it. And so what your indication, Carl, is going to be is once those tops begin to die back, all the pretty vines and leaves, they're going to start to fade. They're going to start to yellow and wilt a little bit. And that's a really great indication of it being close to harvest time. And remember when you harvest them, the skin is really thin. So you've got to be careful when you're digging around in the dirt, you know, just go kind of slowly and make sure you don't bruise any of them. But uh, you'll be able to harvest them just as soon as all those, that greenery starts to kind of give you an indication. And and typically around this area, when does that begin to happen? Because I did plant them around the time frame you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've been growing for a while, but they really, as you said, in this hot weather, I didn't realize that um, they've been really beginning to span all over the place. They've taken over the rest of the garden, actually. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, You know, it could even really be another month. They need 
I mean, it, it depends on the variety. It depends on how big they're getting. But 90 to 120 days is kind of that target window for growth. And if it goes, you know, if they've been in the soil a little over 120 days, it's not going to hurt. Um, but some people, depending on when they started the slips, if they started them a little late, you can harvest all the way up until the first frost. So, I mean, that kind of gives you a very wide window of, yeah, I mean, it could still be into early September, mid-September while people are still harvesting theirs. But since you're on kind of the the other end of that, you planted them earlier, you're probably not, not far. Just kind of keep in mind that 90 to 120 days. Um, but really that indication is going to be, you know, when, when the vines start to wilt. So it could could be another few weeks for you, maybe. That's great. Excellent. And the other one was um, about summer squash and zucchini. Um, they seem to be, as well, the, the leaves get really, really big, but during the heat of the day, they start to wilt. But the, you know, the, the flowering of it seems to not be occurring. I've only gotten a few, which is kind of odd this year, as opposed to many, many squash in the past. So is there any reason for that happening? So the lack of flowers is what you were seeing on the squash? Yeah, yeah. There's only been a couple of squash out of like four or five plants. So So that's not even, you know, we're not even to a pollination issue then at that point. So I would probably say that was either a lack of water there for a while, just inconsistent moisture, or the uh, soil is kind of lacking uh, a few of the nutrients that it might need. Did you do any kind of fertilizer? Yeah, I did with some worm castings and all, but oh. I think the soil across the board was um, kind of lacking in the from the onset. So um, I had a, a friend who was a, more of a professional gardener, and he recommended that I get the soil checked, which I have not done yet because I don't really know where to go to get the soil checked, but I'm going to do that. So, so I've got some good news for you. If that is a place that you're going to continuously plant for years to come, a soil test is definitely worth it. You being in Roswell, uh, the Fulton County Extension Office is going to be more than happy to help you with that. But you can go on um, extension.uga.edu and find the phone number and the address for the Fulton County Extension Office. But either that or you go to Pike Nursery and you pick up a soil kit. I think it's like 10 or $15 uh, at Pike Nursery, and it tells you how to take samples of the soil from various little spots in that in that entire bed or that entire garden. You kind of need to sample the soil from a few different places. And I think it may be free when you go through the extension office. But again, they give you a kit. You go pick up the kit, like mine's in Canton for Cherokee County. Go pick up the kit, and then you bring it back to the extension office, and they send all these soil tests back to the University of Georgia lab. And then when it comes back to you, the lab report looks like it's going to be really complicated, but it's not because they break it down for you, what you're lacking, what you're high in, and then they give recommendations of how to fix it. So, I mean, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. You may still get flowers and you may still get squash for sure. Everything just kind of stalled with that prolonged heat, but going forward, a soil test is absolutely worth it. Okay, great. Good news. Um, I also need to cut off the... Um, kind of dying leaves on a, on a squash plant, whatever, because it seems as if, like, inside there, there's a lot of water inside the hollow uh, stems. Mm-hmm. And so that was causing the stem to maybe yellow and get kind of soft? 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's fine. Once the leaf starts to die, it's not doing any good for the plant. So you're actually doing the plant a favor by removing it. Now, obviously, once you start going out there every day and removing, you know, a few leaves every day, you're going to be left with nothing. So that's probably, if it happens a lot more quickly, that's a sign of something, a larger problem. But just picking a leaf off here here and there is not going to hurt it. It's actually going to help. Gotcha. Okay. And the yeah, last question I'll sure. let you go. Uh, green beans. The green beans are, I can't even say they're dying on the vine because the vines are dying. So the green beans haven't even get, been getting produced in certain portions of my, um, they're climbing green beans. So is there, is there a similar problem along with the tomatoes and the cucumbers that green beans would be suffering similarly? Did you start them from seed or did you start them from plants? Little plants. That, see, uh, green beans are something I have actually never grown. Um, so just based on your experience there, I can't be 100% sure, but it seems like the easy way out to attribute it to the lack of rain and the excessive heat. But yeah, some of the other plants were tough enough to get through it, like the tomato plants and like the squash. The beans, I'm not quite sure. Um, Carl, if you want, are, are they still there, though? Like some of the vines are still there? Yeah, yeah, like I'd say probably three-quarters of the vines have sort of had real problems. They, they weren't that way, to your point about the heat, mm-hmm. before the heat really set in strong in the last couple of weeks. But this rain, and they seem to be doing much better, or they seem to recover a little bit oh. with the, um, the you know, let's call it the fresh rain, because I was always wondering about it, whether it's the, the natural rain is far better for them, it seems, than, you know, water out of the hose. It does so, seem, yeah, it does seem that plants perk up a lot better. They respond a lot better to rain, yeah, than, than us watering it ourselves. What I want you to do, um, if you're on Facebook and you follow me on Facebook on Green and Growing, uh, direct message me, private message me, a couple of pictures of the the green beans because I want a closer look at that and I may share it with someone else. Um, take a picture of the bottom of the plant, like where, it's, where the stem's coming out of the dirt. And I want to make sure nothing's going on there. And then just kind of one standing back, kind of a wide shot overall, kind of what it looks like. And I'll try to diagnose it better from that and get you a, a good answer. If I don't have one, I'll find someone that does. Sounds great, Ashley. Thanks so yeah, much. Really thanks. appreciate it and love, love the show. Thanks, Carl. I'm really glad you were listening and called. Have a great weekend. All right. You too as well. All right. Thanks so much. I love it when we give everything we've got to being successful in the gardens, right? We, we just have all this energy and all this hope that all of these things are going to do well. And please don't be discouraged. This year was so weird and that prolonged heat wave that we had. Um, and meteorologist Christina Edwards is really staying on top of the drought monitor. I think that new information is released every Thursday and kind of keeping us up to date on, you know, are we just abnormally dry conditions? Are we in a D1 drought right now? That's all kind of things that we need to really pay attention to as gardeners. And it's interesting, Carl, uh, talking about those different plants and me reminding you of the pollination of vegetable crops, right? Like you wonder, well, you plant these vegetables, which ones pollinate themselves? Which ones have a complete flower that they don't really depend on the bees? Um, those may be faring a little bit better right now because the bees, they took a hiatus too. They didn't want to be out in the heat any more than we did. So they kind of slacked on their jobs a little bit with those 100-degree days, and I can't blame them. So some of those ones with a complete flower may actually, when they can receive their own pollen, be doing a little bit better. So those could be the bush, pole, and lima beans. Tomatoes are the most common one that has a perfect flower. Um, And other ones that do need to be cross-pollinated uh, they either set seed from their own pollen or pollen received from another plant. Those are like some of the root crops like carrots, uh, onions. We have spinach and corn as well. 
and pollinated by insects, all the other things. The pumpkins, once they start to come out, parsley, squash, eggplants, cucumbers. So kind of keep that in mind. When you're looking at the flower, there's a lot of complexities going on behind that flower of a vegetable. 404-872-0750. When we come back, we'll talk to Dinah and Canton wants to know if there's a way to tell the holes in the ground based on the size what's living in it. So I'll have some advice for her and Trent Ellis with Armor Wildlife Management coming along. And then at 8.30, Pike Nursery, Charles Lampkin with some tips for mosquito control. You don't want to be driven crazy this weekend as you're hosting 4th of July get-together. So we'll help you out next on 95.5 WSB. And the update on the weekend weather is brought to you by Finley Roofing. I think you've heard Channel 2 meteorologist Brad Nitz saying, yeah, chance for rain pretty much now through the middle of next week. High of around 88 today, 89 tomorrow. Heats up a little bit on your July 4th Monday. Hopefully you can dodge the rain showers for that Peachtree Road Race first thing on Monday. Green and Growing! Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. Number one, I want you to consider planting red, white, and blue, okay? If you're looking at some empty pots and you're entertaining, you're having some guests over, or you just want it to look nice for yourself. So here's some suggestions to get those targeted colors. Blue salvia, veronica, agapanthus, hydrangea, the moped hydrangeas. You get those from the nursery now. Plant them, keep them watered, but you're going to enjoy those moped macrophylla blooms. And pentas, vincas, geraniums are good bedding plants, good container plants as well. Make sure to keep everything watered regularly with this week, I guess. When I wrote this, it was still dry, but we've had a lot of rain, so you don't need to worry about that. Mother Nature will take care of it. Number two, plant pumpkin seeds now through mid-July. This is going to be something really fun for the kids to do. Mound the dirt up, the area that you're going to be doing it, maybe a row. Mound all of that up a little bit and then push them down into the ground only an inch deep. Make sure the vines have plenty of room. And you even heard Carl, too, talking about sweet potato vines and potato vines just going absolutely crazy. So that's something you got to think about if you have all, all of your other plantings nearby. And number three, Japanese beetle damage on the leaves of crepe myrtles and roses, maples, other plants. Cause the leaves to have a skeletal look. So you definitely know something's eating them. A lot of times you're going to see the beetle. So you can pick them off. You can pick them off and dump them into a little bucket of soapy water. That's going to take forever. Insecticides are just so tough. It's better to get at them in the spring when they're kind of in the grub stage. So start thinking about that early. If you are plagued every year with infestations of Japanese beetles, you need to start thinking early. Because once you see the adults, it's a little too late. So you can try those traps too. A lot of times... On the labels of these things, you'll you'll see there's, it looks like hundreds of Japanese beetles flying to these traps. I don't know how effective they are, but they're at least some kind of attempt. And also, too, people uh, messaging me on the Green and Growing Facebook page about this Alice in Wonderland looking fat green caterpillar, kind of funky looking, on their tomatoes, crawling on their tomato stems and their tomato leaves. And I thought, Oh, no. When when Anise sent me a picture and saw that, it looks like he's got a lot of eyes. That is a tomato hornworm. My goodness, they are voracious. They can destroy a tomato really, really quickly. This is about the time of year you're going to see them for sure. Um, so nature kind of takes its course in, in this uh, this hornworm, this tomato hornworm. Wasps will lay their eggs on a hornworm if it stays in place for long enough, and that eventually will kill the caterpillar, the hornworm. 
There's two different kind of wasps that'll attack it. And also, you again, you can pick those off. You just got to be really careful. Please have gloves. Drop them right into a, a bucket of water. Or um, you've heard of BT as a caterpillar spray in the landscape, right? Bacillus thuringiensis. That is good. It's an organic chemical for sure. It's been used in organic farms for a long, long time. Um, it's natural, non-pathogenic. It's a bacterium that's found naturally in the soil. So BT, when you hear about that for caterpillar control, that's going to be really effective as well. You, If you have seen these tomato hornworms before, you know what I'm talking about. They will eat the leaves like crazy. So you can really start treating some stuff about mid, mid-May and every week thereafter. But now is not too late to go ahead and get that. The caterpillars just have to eat it, right? They have to ingest it. Um, and then that's going to be kind of effective. 404-872-0750. And something else I've been working on, too. You know, we had Nicole on just a little bit ago, and she was talking about crepe myrtles. This is such an awesome time of year to really start seeing the crepe myrtles bloom. They like the heat. That's when they start to open up. And they're one of those trees that you can prune every year. And people do. You don't have to. But you prune them every year, and there's no chance that you're going to miss out on the blooms, right? You're going to get the blooms regardless. Uh, They bloom on the new wood that they grow. But I recently had to write an article for a magazine and thought, you know, I wanted my uh, my topic to be summer flowering trees, right? Because spring kind of makes us sad when all of our favorite things like peonies and uh, camellias and all of that are kind of done. It's like, okay, well, in the summer, sure, we have bedding plants and annuals and some perennials that are in bloom. But summer flowering trees was really a fun topic for me to do a little bit more research on. So, of course, we talked about crepe myrtle uh, in that article. I mentioned magnolia, of course. Southerners surely recognize the huge, fragrant white flowers of a magnolia. Rose of Sharon, that's one that, despite its name, not really resembling a rose at all. When you look at the flower, it's actually more from the hibiscus family. Very tropical-looking blooms from about now until September. And those can actually grow more of like a tree-form shrub. Um, again, they kind of get twiggy and ugly like crepe myrtles do once all the leaves fall off, so they can be pruned back quite a bit. They're very forgiving, and they bloom on new wood as well. And smoke tree. I actually coincidentally had about three listeners reach out all at one time with questions about a smoke tree. Really fantastic around midsummer. It's kind of got pinkish-gray, smoky, plume-like flowers. Boy, that one's really, really fun. It's multi-trunked. It makes a good specimen tree. So I look forward to sharing uh, more of the summer flowering trees, some of those ideas with you. 404-872-0750. We'll have Dinah from Canton up first and Trent Ellis from Armor Wildlife Management coming up in just minutes on WSB. with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. All right, halfway through the show, it always goes by so quickly. Welcome to Green and Growing. I've got DeMarco with me and Abe's back there. Michael is the one who will answer your calls. He's been answering calls, takes your name and where you're calling from. 
and what your question is. And just like that, you get on the air. We love being interactive with you on a Saturday morning. And of course, Dave Baker and the Home Fix It show comes up at nine o'clock and he's going to pester you from nine to noon. But he always has some great guests in studio as well. Uh, Very thorough with the topics that they cover. 404-872-0750. So I have a guest in studio too. If Dave Baker can do it, I can do it. I've got Trent Ellis from Armor Wildlife Management with me. Trent, welcome back to the show. Good morning. So the last time we did this, it was on the phone. We didn't actually, we'd never met. We'd never seen each other. And you drove down from Northwest Georgia to be on the show this morning. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No traffic, right? Uh, No traffic at all. Yeah, see, these hours, that's the only advantage of these early hours is you don't really hit traffic. Now, on your way home, I can't guarantee anything. Yeah, no, there'll be a little (laughs) bit on the way home. I'm sure. So when you were on the show, maybe a month, month and a half ago, uh, we talked about snakes and I reached out to you and I was like, help someone that knows more about snakes than I do. Um, and you were so helpful in kind of telling us, you know, yeah, now's the time. People are starting to see them. Uh, with your customers and the calls that you get, summer is probably the busiest time with snake calls, right? Yes. Yeah, so when the when the when it warms up, those snakes are going to come out and full force and just eat, um, make new burrows, depending on where they find the best food sources and stuff like that. And um, and just get ready for just a just a nice warm summer. Yeah, and I mean they'll hide out in cool places just like us. And I was talking about the bees too, not really visiting the vegetable garden during that that hot spell. Uh, they wanted a break from the hot weather, and they're trying to hide out in cool places just like us, and just like snakes. I'm sure they're trying to, you know, find a cool shaded spot. But also for years, we've always told people eliminate the clutter near the house, right? Like if you're worried about having snakes out in the yard or by your house, don't have a lumber pile right near the house, right? Or don't have leaves piled up in areas where the kids play. I mean, they're going to find a comfortable spot. You kind of got to think about what they're attracted to, what they like. Yes. So any kind of stacks of wood, toys, gardening equipment, um, anything like that, that gives them shade and kind of a little bit of sense of uh, safety, um, being in there is is where you're going to find them mostly during the hottest part of the day. And then um, they're going to come out, of course, in the early mornings, right as that sun comes out to warm up. And then they'll probably try to get out again before nightfall to warm up right oh. before they go back in. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Are they like, since they're a reptile, they're like cold-blooded or something, right? <laughs> yes. Ah, that's what little bit I remember from eighth grade science class. That's right. But Trent knows a lot more than me about wildlife. So we talked about snakes, and we will take those calls too, 404-872-0750. But really wanted to have you on because when you started your business, Armor Wildlife Management, deer repellent is really what you're into. And I've seen your signs, enjoy the deer, not the damage, right? Yes. So you go at it from a very responsible perspective. We're not doing anything to hurt the deer or injure the deer, but you've got people, I'm sure, customers that call and they're pulling their hair out. They're like, I give up everything I plant, the deer eat, and you've got a great solution. Yeah. So every single call I get starts with, uh, (laughs) the deer have destroyed the brand new landscape that I just put in. And um, I'm just... I've tried everything. Yeah, you're at your wit's end. And so what we've came in with is we've developed a program that is landscape specific based on each one that I go to. And it can change around the year. Um, but for the most part, it just it allows those plants to not be damaged or disturbed for the majority part of the year. And so, you know, we look at it like a threshold. So if, you know, deer are wild animals, so they're going to 
nibble and taste things around the year no matter what. They need to eat. Yeah. yeah. And so they're going to they're going to always know what food is good and so just from us putting our repellent on the plant, you know, it's twofold. So it's a smell and then a taste deterrent. Okay. And so the first few weeks you've got that really strong smell that they don't like and so they'll they'll stay out of the area a little bit, but then once that smell kind of fades away, that taste deterrent kicks in and um so they do have to kind of nibble that a little bit to get that taste. Um, but with that threshold, if, you know, if you've got a huge azalea bush that's just been destroyed over the years, um, you know, if we can minimize that damage and that nibbling to, you know, maybe let's just say 5% of the year Mm -hmm. they're nibbling, then that plant is like, okay, you know, I'm not getting eaten all the time. So I mean, I'm not in recovery mode all the time. Yeah. And so they're able to actually sprout out and kind of grow a little bit more than they typically do because, you know, the biggest thing I notice is, you know, from a plant that's installed a year ago to a plant that's been there for five years, they, they almost are the same size because they're, they're in this kind of state of protection Yeah, right. because they can't grow and they can't prosper with all the leaves being gone. Now, do you find that when the deer really get active and what is it like November through May or something when they're really, or is it kind of all year? So it, it, it goes in waves. And okay. so we, we, that's a part of that program that we kind of dictate. So you've got the big peak wave early season is um, right, right now, actually. Um, those fawns are being born. And so the, the moms not only have been bedded down for a few weeks getting ready to give birth, but they haven't been eating very much. Oh, boy. And so, you know, early May into this time, they have not been eating. And so as soon as those fawn, the babies are born – then not only are the babies having to eat, you know, drink milk, but the moms are having to produce. Oh my and gosh. so um, they're eating not, uh, not twice as much, but they're eating substantially more this time of year. And so it's just a lot heavier on the landscapes. Um, we do get, a, you know, periodically more spot treatment calls around this time of year just because of that heavier activity. And I guess that makes sense. I said it backwards. I said November to May, but really May to November, because you think about it in the winter months, a lot of things lose their leaves. And the deer kind of left to fend for themselves. You know, you see them walking around in the woods and in the snow in December, January, February, but they're probably struggling to find something to eat at that point. Yeah. So the, that so the first part of the wave is this time of year, and then you get a secondary wave in early November when they're going into mating season. Okay. And so the you know leading up to November is the rut, and so they're going to be. The bucks are going to be eating a lot more, trying to bulk on, get as much weight as they can. And then once that rut kind of peaks, then they're eating again to to re- get ready for the winter. But, um, you know, the winters aren't as bad because we are a combination of sprays. We have a winter spray that in November we spray and it lasts four months long. And so it, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's the the manufacturer that developed it is phenomenal. They've been they've been developing and spraying this since the 40s. Wow. Uh, up in North uh, and Connecticut, New York, and stuff like that. And it lasts four months? Up there, it lasts six months. Holy cow. So what is it? I mean, maybe you understand some of the chemistry and maybe not, but what is it that makes it, um, some of these repellents, waterproof? Like, you know, we think of when we spray in the garden and when we read and follow the label directions on different insecticides or herbicides, you know, we, we always read, well, don't apply, you know, right before rain, things get washed off. But I wonder what it is about it that makes it waterproof too. 
So the sticking agents in the summer and winter mixture um, are just, I guess you could say they're almost so far advanced, but it's just a stronger concentration of these chemicals. And so, you know, with our summer repellent, it lasts on average three to four weeks, five weeks, depending on the pressure. And so that's really when we go into a yard, it's all about the pressure. You know, are they in your yard a couple times a week? Are they in your yard a couple times a day? Oh, geez. And so that is really what dictates, you know, how strenuous we have to act on our side to make sure that there's as little nibbling as possible. So I want to talk to Trent certainly in just a little bit. Dinah's got a question about holes in the ground and how to tell based on the size what's going on in the hole. And also want to talk about um, first when Trent comes to your house, I would imagine that you have to be sure. Like, yes, I have seen the deer. They are damaging these plants versus there's bite marks. There's, there's you know, something's eating these leaves, but I'm not able to see it. Maybe it was a rabbit at night. Maybe it was a deer. So we first have to kind of figure out how to diagnose what's going after it. But so earlier you mentioned, you know, azaleas, one could be set back because it's just constantly in protection mode. It's not really growing as strenuous as it should because it's always being eaten. Um, With azaleas, with hostas, I know is like a buffet for deer. Are they more prone to eat something that's got uh, new growth and maybe buds and things, or did they go after the plants that are fully leafed out that are established, or does it even matter? So they actually don't like the mature leaves as much. It's all that new growth. It's 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 um, it's very light. It's not as uh, hard mm-hmm. consistency, and so their their stomachs are able to digest it a lot better. And um, but they love the new growth. They love the buds. Lot of a uh, lot of uh, nutrients in those. And so, you know, every year it's like, oh, there's a little less, you know, activity on my plants. But then as soon as they start to bud out and start to grow during this time of year, it's like, where did it all go? Yeah. And they're just gone. And um, I mean, they can within a day or two, if you've got a, a decent herd in an area, they can they can do some damage. Well, and a lot of folks in my area up in Cherokee County and Cobb County always remark that they notice, yeah, not just one. I mean, it's funny to just see one because most often, like at dusk, they see four or five. So it is. It's kind of they're traveling in a little pack, traveling in a family. Yeah, so they they definitely travel. um, So there's two different types of herd groups when you're talking about white-tailed deer. There's the uh, female and fawn groups, and so they will stay together pretty much year round for the first with the fawns they'll stay in there um until they're about a year to year and a half old and um during off peak rut the bucks will actually create male herds wow. to protect each other um while they're regrowing their horns and so it's just really cool to see how you've got these two separate herds and then as soon as rut hits all bets are off all the all the males are going after all the females and um it's just it's it's pretty amazing it's funny when you said when they're when they're growing their new antlers and things. I spotted one in the woods behind my house not too long ago. It was like Memorial Day weekend ish, and I, I just saw this mound of brown from a distance, you know, in and amongst the leaves. And I thought that's a weird pile of dirt for. And then it just kind of barely moved, and I was like, oh gosh, that's a deer laying back there because it was in the middle of the day. So mm-hmm. I'm sure he was just resting, and it was kind of a cooler part of the day. Um, but when I really got the binoculars out and I looked at him really carefully, I could see those new antlers growing they i mean it was at a distance but it looked like maybe they were only three or four inches long but kind of fuzzy and that was neat to see that now do they lose their antlers every year and regrow yes so they lose them in uh late january early february and then they start regrowing um about may that's fascinating and so every year they get bigger and bigger until they're about seven or eight years old 
and um, and then they start to you know the proteins and everything that the the deer has to grow them mm-hmm. starts to reduce, kind of like you know older men. Yeah, they're just on a shorter scale, right? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven fifty. Time to take a quick break. And Dinah from Canton, I promise you'll be up first about how to tell what's causing a hole in my yard. How do I know what it is? We'll get to the bottom of that. And your calls about anything wildlife that you're seeing outside that you've got concerns with. Trent is here to answer your questions until eight thirty. Four zero four eight seven two zero seven fifty. You're listening to Green and Growing on ninety five point five WSB. And a quick update on your weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. It's pretty easy, actually. Today through at least Tuesday, a chance for scattered thunderstorms. Highs are hovering right around the upper 80s, low 90s. And uh, you're going to be dodging most of those showers into the afternoon and evening. 404-872-0750. I've got Trent, Trent Ellis with me from Armor Wildlife Management. And I so appreciate Dinah from Canton being so patient. Hey, Dinah, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Oh, I can't wait for your question. I have I've teased ahead to it, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> I live in the woods and uh, walk the dog. Well, not on a leash. She just goes with me. And I always wonder when I see holes, whether it's a chipmunk or a snake or a rabbit or I don't know what. Okay. Is there any way to tell the difference? So what size are you seeing most commonly? How many inches across would you say they are? Oh, probably not more than inch and a half most of them okay so smaller holes is this just in the woods or is it by your house both Both. i live in the woods we have have trees all around the house okay so trent your first indication was thinking like where are they located yeah i mean you have so depending on the area you have snake uh holes that um are usually kind of in by root balls because they're a lot easier to move the dirt and, um, but if they're up near the house, like up against a wall, then you would probably think chipmunk. Um, and then moles, of course, just burrow straight into the grass. And so those would be my top three. Okay. Um, yeah, with an inch, inch and a half diameter yeah. or so. And there is a really good um, article on Walter's website as well, Dinah, WalterReeves.com. And all I did was type holes in the search bar on his website. And to Trent's point, too, where are they located? Uh, what is the size? And then the third thing you want to look at is the soil conditions. And Trent, you've probably noticed that depending on if it's burrowing and the the soil sinks in versus if it's something that's digging and it has to push the soil out. And it's kind of indicative of what it might be if you see a mound of soil, you know, upright next to the hole. That kind of may change the game as to identifying what it is, too. Yes, yes, you are correct. Yeah, so that that could be interesting if there's if there's no mound, if dirt's just scattered around the lawn, um, it could be like a skunk or a raccoon because they're just a little more careless and energized when they're kicking that dirt out. Um, squirrels too, I guess we have to worry about squirrels burying acorns at, at different times of the year too, because not only are they going to make a hole and bury it, but then they have to come back in a few months and unearth it as well. So, um, but Dinah, yeah, I think I, I like Trent's answer there for it to be snakes or moles or even chipmunks man chipmunks mm-hmm. have a, a corridor that they travel all the time once they find a comfortable little neighborhood um i wanted to ask you too about rabbits do rabbits burrow because they don't, don't yes know, like how do they bed how do they have their bunnies so rabbits are a little different so they will find a pocket 
um, right underneath either the top layer of soil or even like a layer of roots from grass. And so they're not deep at all. And um, you find them a lot underneath the plastic sheets underneath the AC unit. Oh. And so they, they just, they find a nice shallow pocket and that way they can monitor around them. But it, it's a little deeper than just so the smell doesn't go everywhere from them. And so, you know, really, you know, mowing the yard, if you have a big field, um, just, mm-hmm. you know, being careful because they, they literally burrow right underneath that root, root root ball line. Wow. See, and yeah, you don't even think about that when you're just riding around on the mower, like how shallow they really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ba- you can lift it up and they're right there and... Wow. And I've even seen on some of the gardening pages that I'm a part of on Facebook, you know, people sharing pictures, if they've had a larger mouth pot on the deck or maybe underneath the deck or something that didn't have any plantings in it necessarily, the bunnies know that that has been left alone for a little bit and they'll start to kind of dig out, yeah, like a little saucer shape, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, concave little space in the top of a pot and they'll just kind of be in there too. So once you see them, leave them alone. I wonder how long it takes for the babies to to grow up and and leave the little nest, so to speak? So with the babies, um, they're pretty much on their own after a month or two. Wow. And so, you know, from birth to to going out and adventuring out, it's it's within about a month to two months. Okay. Yep. So so that's interesting too. So you won't see a hole with rabbits necessarily like Dinah mentioned. No, no hole there, but perhaps snakes or chipmunks. Thank you so much for the call. More of your questions coming up. Brent Lawrenceville has a question about how to keep squirrels from eating his corn. So squirrels, I'm sure, are something that Trent gets a lot of calls about too, right behind deer. 404 872 It's green and growing. Stay, stay tuned to WSB.